This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Bird of the Year is coming up. Uh, voting starts on October the 1st. When's that? That's Monday. Uh, you've got two weeks to vote. We're going to run through all of the past winners of Bird of the Year and also delve into some of the controversy. There's been Russian meddling with the Godwit uh, because they do spend some time in uh, Siberia. Uh, there have been hackers, fake news, all sorts of dirty tricks. The first dirty tricks actually started, uh, I, I started it actually, uh, with the grey warbler uh, besmirching uh, the bird which was coming a close second, which was the wood pigeon, which I just called a big fat doofus, and upset Kiritakanawa. That was headline news throughout the country, You, I'm sure you'll remember. But other polls and statistics, it's time for human sorts of statistics with Jonathan Dodd. G'day, Jonathan. Yeah, g'day, Graham. Are you voting for bird of the year? Everyone must. Yeah, it's an interesting one. You see, you go. Um, I'm actually very partial to the Tui because I think they get overlooked. Oh, yeah. People just think they're just black and white and that's that. But you look at them closely and they're actually pretty amazing birds. Yeah, it was the second bird of the year. When was that? 2006, I think, or something like that. Anyway, yeah. It has had it's its... It's going to run out. They just sort of cycle through them, I think, from, <laughs> for a while. Well, that's the thing. That's the only thing that's left to be done. Well, one of the things that is left to be done is something I've probably overlooked, but uh, the first bird to make it top twice. Let's go warbler. Why not? Yeah, good. So good, good singing. <laughs> All right, now for the human statistics. We're talking about optimism and different groups of people, however you want to slice them, with different levels of optimism slash pessimism. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, Ipsos has just done the survey um, 15 countries, particularly with quite a focus on developing countries, and we've actually done this for the Gates Foundation. So um, you know how Bill Gates and Bill and um, is it Linda, I think, they're yeah. very much into um, into bringing up developing countries and you know, getting rid of malaria and all that kind of thing. It's actually quite cool if you can catch some interviews with Bill. He's a, he's a pretty cool guy. Yeah. Um, so we interviewed about uh, 40,000 people for that, and in particular in most markets we're able to talk to um, people aged 12 and up. So it's not your normal adult one, but we're able to get young people as well. And I think really, I mean, fortunately, fortunately, um, and you might be surprised when you think about how much time they spend playing Fortnite or watching Twilight, is that younger people are actually more optimistic about the future than older generations. Yeah. Which, which is nice. They haven't all just given up on, on the mess of the world that they've been they're inheriting. Um, Could that perhaps be that they've got a lot of future to look forward to and the older people um, are perhaps responding in a selfish way, saying, well, bloody hell, I haven't got much life left. That sounds stink. <laughs> well, it's actually more about the future of the country oh, okay. rather than your own one. Oh. Um, we ask them a lot, that kind of a thing. And... I mean, we always talk about the enthusiasm of youth and the cynicism of age. You know, yep. if younger people weren't optimistic, things would be really bad. But what's really interesting, of course, is when you realise that, you know, um, optimism means that you're going to get better than where you are now. Things are going to get better. And, yep. of course, if you're starting from a low point, then by definition, you've got more opportunity than someone who's already doing really well. So it's those who are in low- and middle-income countries are the ones that are the most optimistic. Yeah, there's a, no shortage of things to point at that could be fixed. Yeah, and, you, and, and generally things, I think, are getting better, but there's more room for it. And frankly, if you think that things weren't going to get any better, it would be pretty awful. 
Yes, but um, yeah, 80% of 12 to 24-year-olds in lower middle-income countries saying they're optimistic about the future of the world, mm-hmm. compared to only 50% of those in higher-income countries. Wow. There's so much in this. You know, higher-income countries tend to get more media and more news and be more plugged into what's going on around the world. So yeah. Sometimes optimism can just be a sign of... Um, a lack of knowledge or, or ignorance. Yeah, and taking a few things for granted as well. Uh, people in better income con- countries uh, do have an enormous amount of, probably the the most luxuriously privileged people that have ever been on the planet, actually, yep. uh, because things have gotten better. Yeah, and you can see that when you look at the priorities. So yeah. when we you know, there's these sustainable development goals that have been sort of set by the UN, I think, and we're asking people which do you think should be the big ones. And so, yeah, those in low and middle-income countries, and particularly younger people, it's all about education. To say they know that, you know, they, yeah. they know that's the way you get ahead. Yeah, that's what younger people need, all that education. If you don't have it, you really want it. Those in the higher-income countries that have got the, the, the education, they're looking at climate change. Yeah, is the key priority, and I think that's really interesting when you always look at those climate change talks, and you get the the developed countries that have they've got their nice standard living, so now they're like, hey, all you other dirty poor countries, stop emitting bad emissions, and the yeah. people in low income countries are going, we actually need to do all this, so we need education and improve ourselves, you know, so. Yeah, climate change, um, really abrupt climate change, uh, is. It's the joker in the pack, really, that's currently on the table that is mucks up what might usually be the result of some of these polls, perhaps, because it is uh, the first time we've recognised it and have come across something like this. Yeah, and, and in particular, when they're now talking about climate change instead of global warming, because people, you know, I can remember when people thought, oh, global warming, we'll all just grow pineapples, isn't that be lovely? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they're going, ah, oh, actually we're getting a truckload of hurricanes and, and all this kind of stuff that, is, that we have to pay for now. It's not like future generations will have to slowly adapt and what have you. Mm. So, yeah, when it, like anything, once it becomes more immediate and costly, mm. it gets people's attention. Oh, this is, uh, oh, what a surprise. Uh, women are more likely than men to agree that life is better for men and boys than women and girls. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. They'd be more likely to agree because they'd be the ones best positioned to to see the the differences. But interestingly, the difference is more pronounced in higher income countries. Yeah. Now, higher income countries, the women are more likely to be educated, so they might be more aware of it. Um, might be one of those areas where also that um, it becomes one of those luxuries where you can genuinely have an equal distribution of jobs between the sexes, you know, whereas mm. in poorer countries, which can often be a lot more laborious, you've got very old-school um, attitudes towards labour and division of labour, mm. you, you get differences. So again, that's probably one of those things where um, they, um, the higher-income countries are going, it's not so much of an issue anymore, and those poorer ones are going, yeah, there's a three stop. Have a look at universities. Have a look at universities in the Western world. They're all oh. about 60% um, female. I know, and I feel like it was fantastic when I was at uni. I remember I was the only bloke in a community psychology lecture, <laughs> surrounded by women. Yeah. At uni. Yeah. yeah. It was tough. Yeah. There are all sorts of gender disparities, uh, if, you, if, you, if you want to look for them. It's not always, you know, one way. You know, it's STEM, yeah. It should be more women in STEM, but maybe there should be more men in the social sciences. Well, there should be, and there are, but of course, there are a lot of men in there, but... Um, yeah. 
And then you look at what they're doing. So you get a lot more women doing the social work and the men doing the academic stuff at universities. So you still get those gender splits within a a, a so-called industry. Yeah, and the reasons why can be pondered long and hard. Okay. (laughs) We can bond it. (laughs) Let's talk about marketing psychology, the growth of nudge. Yeah, nudge is is really cool, um, and it's been used um, in a lot of positive ways. Because um, you know, when you talk about marketing psychology, generally people think, oh, it's about tricks. It's about how I'm getting tricked at the supermarket to do this and do that. Um, but some some people may have heard about this. This whole growth of what we call um, behavioural science or behavioural economics in the, in the sort of field of psychology and marketing. And it's basically a much more strategic way of looking at human behaviour and really recognising that we are as illogical and daft and silly as you and I talk about from Mm. week to week. You know, all these cognitive biases that show how our brains don't really work in a nice logical way. But advertising often thinks that we do think logically, you know. Um, Here's this product, it'll make you sexy, so go buy it kind of a thing. Or Mm. you shouldn't drink and drive because you'll crash. You know, that kind of stuff only works so far. Mm. And these sorts of things we've been finding, like we've talked about this before, like you feel worse pain at losing $10 than you gain in pleasure from being given $10. Yeah. Even though it's the same thing. We justify logical behaviors. We get stuck in bad habits we don't question. We do things, you know, that we know we shouldn't. You know, we all, you know, are guilty of doing things we shouldn't do as much as we can, even if it's just smoking or drinking or exercising. So in recent years, there's been a lot more science being put into this. It really works on how people actually think and, and behave and works on that on the marketing point of view. And it sounds a bit weird, but if I give you examples of how this has been worked in real life, you'll go, aha. So if you've ever been online and you're looking to buying something and you'll see a pop-up that goes, 17 people are looking at this right now. Yeah. Or or I just happened to me the other day I was booking something online, you know. Somebody just puts just booked this property kind of a thing. Um or you see those ads I've seen along the roadside about um it says your family wanted to see you get home tonight kind of a thing. Yeah. And it's all about that social pressure, like it's just whether or not I mean, how do you know when you're online that if somebody really did just buy that product? Could just be <laughs> a complete lie. But when you start getting that pressure like, oh, I might be the last one, I might miss out, this must be good because other people are doing it, yeah. then you start thinking, okay, it's a better offer, I should get into it now. And then these are sort of ways of putting those social pressures. You know, um, you might not want to get a flu shot, but think about the impact on your kids if you get sick kind of thing. It's not saying it's good for you, it's all about putting in that social pressure. Um, you know, there's road safety ads where you see, um, you know, ghost trips is a, is a great one, but you get all those other ads which now give people scripts, so to speak, like um, the old men that interfere in the in the drink drivers. Mm-hmm. My balls are in your hands. It's almost by sh- by showing you these mini plays. It's like going, here's a script that you can follow next time you're in the situation. And you can either reference reference it like ghost chips or, you know, my balls are in your hands for a bit of a shorthand to let everyone know what you're doing. Or you it just gives you that way with all a script to follow or an example about how this can play out in real life and not, you know, have negative consequences. Mm. Just, you know, so rather than just saying don't do it, it's making it socially acceptable and giving you a, 
a lead to follow. Yeah, stories are powerful. Yep. Yeah. Yep. All um, right, um, Jonathan Dodd, we've got to pull up stumps. Uh, thank you very much for this week's instalment of Human Statistics. And next up, we're talking about the Russell Forest in Northland. Uh, it is really collapsing. It's bad news. There's a film of it on the Forest and Bird website. Is this just a return of serve, though, for the rather shrill hysteria that's been going on very recently with 1080? Jonathan, thank you. And next up, uh, Dean Bajant Mercer from Northland. Enviro News and Issues on Radio Live. Friends, you owe it to yourself and your family to leave the congested city and enjoy what nature intended you to enjoy. Recent article you may have seen around the traps. So I think one in the Herald. It'll be in, uh, a Forest and Bird article as well. Shocking new footage of Northland ghost forests in severe collapse. So we're talking the Russell Forest. Forest and Birds, Dean Bajant Mercer is with it. He's uh, Forest and Birds Northland person. Dean, um, welcome along to Enviro News. First of all, we should do a statutory introduction. Thanks, Graham. Is this a little bit of a return of serve, given there has been an unfortunate, I make no qualms about saying an unfortunate, uh, level of hysteria and worry around the use of 1080? Yeah, well, we've certainly seen the upsurge of misinformation, fake news, hysteria, threats, yeah, bad behaviour generally, and not understanding the issue. It's, I mean, the issue with Russell State Forest and many other forests in the country isn't about 1080. It's about turning around the collapse that we have inherited. We've inherited impoverished forests because people before our lifetimes generally have introduced animals to them from the other side of the world. And the plants and the animals here don't have a defence against them. OK. First of all, where is the Russell State Forest? What are people looking at? It's a beautiful forest, 6,000 hectares, and it's between the Bay of Islands and Whangarei. You can drive through part of the middle of it going through the Russell, uh, the old Russell Road. Okay, what sort of forest is it? There are diff- different types and suites of uh, plants and animals? Yeah, this, uh, it was um, a Cody forest, and it was logged very, very heavily from the mid-1800s onwards. So it's now one of the biggest regenerating Cody forests on Earth uh, that's left. Um, and there's all sorts of other species in there as well. But between 1979 and 1993, wildlife surveys showed that uh, native pigeons, up north we call them kukupa or keredu in the rest of the country, the keredu populations decreased by 80%. And that's because in Northland, the area, the region, was the last place in the country that possums really got to. So I've met lots of Komatua who remember seeing their very first possum. And when they were kids, there were native pigeons throughout the north. And it was really normal to see a puriri or a pohutikawa tree with 30 or 40 um, kereru in them. And, but during their lifetimes, the forests that were full of pigeons became full of possums. And so when we filmed the uh, Russell State Forest from a helicopter a few weeks ago, we were over the forest for about 45 minutes filming, and we only saw three kereru. Like It's in a, such an extreme state of co- collapse, and the canopy of the forest 
there's tall sort of trees dying all over the place, and there's a greyness generally across the whole forest because for, uh, possums really have been left to do whatever they wanted to do since 1995. And in that year, part of the forest got an aerial 1080 operation, and there has been some work um, for fur recovery around the edges of it. But basically, since possums arrived in Russell State Forest, it, possums have had it to themselves, as have rats, stoats, weasels, feral cats, and the seeker deer that were illegally released 20 years ago. Illegally released? Can you just expand on that a bit? Well, you know, the laws are that, you sh- that you're not allowed to release you know, animals, particularly invasive animals, into new areas. And so there is a movement um, throughout the country, actually, of shifting deer around and releasing them into different places. So even in Northland in the past couple of years, people are releasing red deer. And um, in other parts of the country, they're shifting deer species around. So in an area that might have um, red deer, fallow suddenly turns up, or seeker. So people are deliberately still releasing animals in areas where they haven't previously been. And it's just another kind of wave of um, destruction that follows. Purposefully released for the hunting of them or to have a go at people like you? Well, that's a good question. You would have to find the people and ask them themselves. Right. But uh, I think it was last year in Taranaki, which had previously been a deer-free region, Seeker deer, which are very hard to hunt, were released there. And it seems to be an act of revenge um, against um, the the opportunity to turn um, Taranaki Maunga into a pest-free area and use 1080 as part of the tools in the toolkit. And so it seems to be a vindictive move um, from um, anti-1080 interest to release seeker deer there um, to try and, I don't know, kind of a ridiculous way to make a point, environmental vandalism. Yeah. That goes on for generations. Yeah, OK. Well, it does seem as though the anti-1080 lobby, or this 1080, um, which has been proven to be effective, and you know the science is in on, on this, but it is, ironically, the one thing which is really poisoning making good progress. Yeah, it's, a, it's unleashed um, some sort of repressed rage in society, it seems. Yeah. But the best thing to do is not to talk about banning 1080, it's to understand 1080. When I first looked into this about 20 years ago, I thought 1080 was probably like DDT or 245T, 24D or something like that. But um, it's completely unrelated to particularly um, 245T, 24D and Agent Orange. Their origins comes from oil. But um, fluoroacetate, which is actually the toxin within 1080, that's naturally produced in plants in Australia, South America, South Africa. Puha's got it, hasn't it? Puha's got some of that. Yeah, apparently, yep, Puha and tea. Camellias um, have um, 1080 or fluoroacetate in them. That's why you won't see a possum eating the leaves of camellias, but they will eat flowers. Speaking of the possum diet, rata is often cited as a pretty good barometer of how a northern forest is doing, the northern rata. Mm. How are they doing? Well, it was pretty tragic flying over Russell State Forest because nearly all of the northern rata have been killed kind of in the past decade. 
And so the possums have already chewed their ways through these, you know, forest giants that were hundreds and hundreds of years old and have moved on now to Tortara. And I mean, they are not the most delicious food for possums, so way down their favourite food list. And Tortara leaves are very spiky, so they don't eat the adult leaves. The possums go out and nip off the ends when there's new fresh buds. Mm. And once they do that over a period of years, the, the trees die. And you can see from the helicopter footage that the trees kind of look like they've been uh, frozen somehow. They're just kind of like ghost trees. Uh, what about other forest in Northland? Is it, is it all pretty much suffering the same way? Yeah, it's the same story for any forest, regardless of who the landowners are or who has responsibility, if there's been little or no pest control. So if we flew a drone or whatever over most of the forest, they would be in a sick condition. There has been some work in some of the forests for um, for a number of years. There's a part of Pukati Forest that is really well looked after mm. and um, parts of Allpore State Forest. But the trapping on the ground... Um, serves for a proportion of the forest, but the rest of it um, is left to decline slowly or quickly, depending on what action's being taken. And so the breakthrough with Russell State Forest is uh, Maggie Barry at the start of last year, she said that DOC would support a hapu-led 20-year restoration and recovery plan of Russell State Forest. And it's never been done anywhere else in the country. And so the nine hapu that whakapapa into Russell State Forest, which is under treaty claim, they have come up with a draft um, rescue plan. And um, they'll they'll no doubt be talking about that in the future. But it's pretty amazing that that they're pulling together to turn around the fate of that forest because it's an empty shell at the moment. But it can be turned around and it can return to its former glory, but it will take a lot of work, particularly as it's been allowed to slip away so far. All right. One of the difficulties, and it's difficult to talk about, but I shan't shy away from it, and that is uh, some Maori spiritual attitudes towards 1080 and getting around that argument. It must have been done. Well, there's there's, there's as many opinions in, in foresight uh, within um, te ao Māori, within Māori culture, as anywhere else. Um, I've heard some kaumātua talking about 1080 as being rongoa of the forest, like medicine for the forest, and that, you know, if someone's dying and has cancer, then do you deprive them of chemotherapy or whatever is needed to keep that person alive? So there are people from that end of the spectrum right across to people that think that using 1080 is going to poison everything, even though there's a lot of evidence to show that it certainly doesn't. All right. One of these problems is this creeping lowering of a normal um, that within a human lifetime, you have to be a reasonably old person to remember how things used to be. And if you've grown up with how it is now, you think that's how the forest is. This tyranny of a creeping normal. And you see that with comments on Facebook, with the helicopter footage, with people claiming that, oh, they're just old trees dying, or it's myrtle rust, or it's this, that, and the other. They just don't know what to look for, but also they think what they're seeing is normal, like you say. But it's not. These forests should be vibrant, and flying over them 
we should be seeing flocks of huge amounts of birds, kākariki, kāka, kereru, and also the canopy should be really full and be shades of greens, olives, dark greens, bright greens. That's what a natural healthy forest looks like. And you can actually see that um, if you fly over native forests that have been looked after for a long time. It doesn't matter where in the country. But the northern ones are in real, real um, strife. Mm. Is there anything special about the suite of uh, the nature of a Northland forest um, that gives it, I don't know, some special ecosystem status? I'm not. I'm not biased in any way. Uh, <laughs> it's rare. They are very different to southern forests, and yeah. that they don't get cold. You know, we don't get snow. Well, once in a blue moon, on the tops of a couple of mountains in Northland, and so the temperatures are very warm. And so we have a lot of species within the Cody Forest that exist nowhere else in the country and nowhere else on Earth. Also, that means there's always some plants that are fruiting and flowering. Mm. And so there's a food supply, which is supposed to be for native birds, but these forests that are infested with rats and possums, they are the ones that get the benefit from from um, this abundance of food. So it's quite a different... Um, we have to develop new techniques for pest control on top of the ones we already have for these warm forests because rats don't get um, hit down so hard in winter mm. in areas like in the South Island where you get snow and um, it actually kills a whole lot of rats. In Northland they can stay at very high levels for most of the year. And in fact, Russell State Forest that we're talking about, there was some monitoring that has gone in in the last few weeks and they found rats at 80% and possums at 100%. That's completely unsustainable and un unacceptable. And for core kakul, you know, the very rare bird that we've got on the $50 note, for those to, birds to survive, you have to have rats and possums kept below 5% constantly. Mm. And when you hear the kōkākō on national radio, I think it's John Kendrick's recording of the last one that was in Pukati Forest in Northland. Yeah, and interestingly, um, so, so those birds in Pukati died, and then the last population left was in this area behind Waipoa Forest called Mataraua and Waimaa Forest. And those last birds, I think there were five pairs of them, so 10 birds, all in pairs, were found in the early 1990s. And all the stops have been pulled out to save those birds and the ecosystems that they live in using a mix of 1080 and trapping very judiciously, both aerial 1080 and on the ground and all sorts of other techniques. And now there's at least 120 pairs. So interestingly, in Northland, 1080 prevented the extinction of kōkākul to the point where they were then able to be returned to Pukati Forest that you mentioned just before, where the last one in that forest um, died out in the late 70s, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's a hell of an effort. Um, so there you go. You know, 1080 yeah. helped prevent extinction. Okay. Um, I what is happening to this 20-year plan? started with Maggie Barry. Uh, all hands on deck. Um, what's holding it back? Let's get going. What do you need oh, to well, happen? Um, yeah, well, uh, I think the hapu um, mangai, the, the spokespeople for the hapu, will come out in the next um, six months or so and be able to describe their aspirations and what they want to do within that. Um, yeah, that's up to them to talk rather than me. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's pretty amazing in its draft form. And it will do more than just 
conservation of species and um, bringing back species that are lost. There's also revitalisation of te reo Māori factored in and educational opportunities. So it's pretty um, future looking. Um, you know, it's yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. I recall hearing kiwi when I was growing up in Northland, and you, it, the last time you hear one, it never comes with a signifier that says, oh, by the way, that's the last time you'll hear it. You know, it, it's a decade, and then you forget. That's that tyranny of uh, you get used to a new normal. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I have kiwi at my place, and I hear them every night. They're quite loud, and they're very close. They're kind of... Uh, and it's, over the road, if you if you were living in an urban setting, and one night I heard feral cats yowling from the same spot that I heard kiwis call at, and that could have been the end of them, and that really pushed me over the edge to use all the tools in the pest control toolbox at my place, trapping cyanide and 1080. And I tell you what, it's turned around the kiwi population, uh, the the ancient trees that were dying, and a lot of the other native birds and bugs like the wetter populations bounce back, all sorts of things. It's, it's remarkable. The forests want to live. you just got to give them a chance. It's just like, you know, kids being treated badly. They can't grow into the great adults that they could be. Mm. You know, everything wants to be, wants to grow to their best potential when you give them the best opportunity. Just another kind of like a piece of eco-history. Um I find it remarkable how recently the possums arrived in such a warm, nice place for them. In the 50s and 60s, was it? Yeah, that's right. So there was a bounty system in the country between 1951 and 1961. This is a bounty on possums. And at the time, it was instigated to try and knock down possums because it was clear that it was having they were having a terrible effect on the horticulture industry, on orchards and on native forests. Um, and at that time, there was no possums north of the Auckland Harbour Bridge. Wow. But, but, what ha- but accidentally, what happened is that the incentive to knock down possums with a bounty system acted as an incentive for some people to bring up joeys, possum joeys, after they were possuming further south and release them in Northland so that they too could collect the bounty. What a backfire. I know. So when I hear people saying, what we need is a bounty in this country on, you know, possums, stoats, whatever, I, you know, been there, done that, they need to know their history. It actually doesn't work. And game theory, actually. <laughs> <If you're... laughs> right, yeah, there's a bounty, there's money in it, let's get some. Uh, yeah, far out. What a strange piece of history for Northland. Yeah, and so that's... And, and so that's why, in a space of a human lifetime, things have changed significantly in Northland. But it's happened very slowly, really, and at night. And already there were crashes of things. Like when ship rats um, invaded the country, they, they, they kind of spread themselves around from 1840, 1850, and they got everywhere and they plagued. But in the 1880s, there was an extinction event, and we lost um, Peel Peel, the native thrush, mm. uh, Kōreke, the native quail, not long after, Huya went and Laughing Owl went as well. Uh, I mean, they were supplemented by the introduction of um, stoats, weasels and ferrets. But each time something new invades, there is a, an extinction event or a collapse. And hopefully um, the 20-year plan to bring Russell's forest back to life isn't too late. 
there were some really rare species in there 20 years ago, and I'm just keeping my fingers and toes crossed they're still there um, in numbers where they don't need to don't get inbred and stuff. Um, yeah, it's pretty dicey. In other places, there's, there's really rare plants that, that could go because there's not active pest control going on. So it's a race against time. Okay. Um, I hope envy plays a part in as much as Taranaki seems to have its act together and is making great progress. And I would have thought Northland would have been a far um, more obvious candidate for the first national area uh, to really have a thrust at taking seriously predator-free 2050. Um, because of the isthmus nat- nature of it. It's a peninsula. Yeah, it's, I mean, human politics plays a big part in it, but also it's it's quite complicated. What we heard um, in June is Ngāti Kuri, which is the tribe at the very top, announced that they want to do a predator-proof fence from the Tasman Sea across to the Pacific Ocean at the very top of the country, which would be, and behind that would be the, the first human living community within a pest-proof fence, and that would cover around 33,000 hectares. So one step at a time. We don't know. None of us knows if this can be done successfully yet, so it's going to be a really interesting kind of game-changer in how the technology around that develops. So, you know, it is actually beginning in the north as well. Um, it's, and people in the north are, are travelling down to places like Puriura, which have had 1080 for 30 or 40 years, and those forests are pumping yeah. so they can see what they can also have. Seeing is believing, and you really need to take people who have heard all the horror stories of 1080 to places where have, have had it for a while to, to get past the prejudice, the gossip, and the misinformation. Yeah. Um, and look, I have sympathy, uh, and I, I can see why people are sceptical about predator-free predator 2050. But as a goal, um, trying to get there on the way, um, anything you do is going to improve uh, the health of our ecosystems. Absolutely. And even if we're not 100% predator-free, if we can keep very low predators, introduce predators down, it totally changes the nature of things, like at my place, I definitely don't have, um, you know, all of those greedies, the rats, possums, stoats, down to zero. Yeah. But even just knocking them annually allows so much uh, species to bounce back. It's really, really incredible. The more work you put in, the more that comes back. Um, so it's not an all or nothing thing, and it's not all 1080 or all trapping. It's a mixture of tools and mixing it up and learning as we go along. All right. Dean Bajant Mercer, Forest and Bird Northland, uh, thank you very much. And you can see on the Forest and Bird website uh, a bit of the horror show of this forest collapse in the Russell State Forest. I hope things go well for you in the future. Cheers. Thanks. See you, Graham. New Zealand is yours. Go there now. That piece was recorded earlier in the week as Dean Bajant Mercer had to leave the country. I think it was Tuesday. And either way, whichever you sli- way you slice it, they have begun since that was conducted, the 1080 application at Russell Forest. So, good luck. Next up, Bird of the Year.
over the years. It begins Monday. You're tuned in to the Weekend Variety Wireless. Every year it happens. Seems like it's been going forever, but it's only been going since 2005. But that's a pretty good run, and it's a damn good thing. There's been so much controversy surrounding it as well. People look at us and our bird of the year from overseas and think we're mad, but I think we've got something right. I hope John Oliver covers this and another mad thing from New Zealanders. Joining us from Forest and Bird, Megan Hoopshire, we're having a look at the history of of the bird of the year and some of the controversies, fake bird news, Russian hacking, all that sort of stuff. The voting begins October 1. That's that's Monday. That's Monday. Yeah. Not long to go now. So to get ready for it, Forest and Bird webpage, it's looking flasher than ever. That's up already so people can go and have a look at it and have a think about why they should vote for Grey Warbler and make it the first bird to win twice. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cutie pie, all right? Oh, is it what? 2005 was the inaugural bird of the year. Maybe no surprises. Tui won. Doing okay, New Zealand's Tui. There's three ways forest and bird talk about our native birds, whether they're doing okay. 30% of our native birds are all right, and the Tui is one of them. We've got other birds that are in some trouble. Half of all our native birds are in some trouble, and then we've got 30% of our birds that are in serious trouble. Back in 2005, the winner was the Tui, and she was doing good. They are a great indicator if you're getting some pest control right. They do bounce back, but we get used to this normal of, oh, a couple of tui, that's okay. But, man, when you get predator control going on, they can really bounce. They take off. They've just had some tui reintroduce themselves down in Canterbury again, which caused a big stir down there because they haven't seen tui for a long time. So yeah. something's going right. Yeah, when you say doing okay, it may not be everywhere in the country. And uh, I don't think Hamilton are um, familiar with tui in their backyards for a long, long, long time. But anyway, the fantail flew in from Australia, I don't know, a million years ago or something. But, man, it's a fun thing. That was 2006 winner. They are gorgeous. Hiwaka waka. We get them quite a bit around Wellington where I live. Chirpy little buggers in the forest and in cities as well. So 2006 winners also doing okay. One of the things that people might not know about Piwaka Waka is that we would have an awful lot more of them if we had a few less rats and stoats and cats. Yeah, we sort of we see them a lot, and we maybe take them for granted a little bit. But those guys would be everywhere yeah. if, if we could get some rat numbers down. Yeah, because they breed very, very well, don't they? They can lay four clutches every season. Yeah, that's nutty. That is good going. Okay, the gorgeous fantail. In 2007, the greatest triumph of Forest and Birds Bird of the Year, the rank outsider, but at last appreciated for being the soldier in almost every situation. You may just hear the gorgeous sound of a grey warbler. This from my backyard. Rirorido, the grey warbler. They're only found in New Zealand, but they're found nearly all over New Zealand, so they're fighters for sure. They also have regional dialects the song changes around the country. You'll hear them and you'll recognise them, but you'll also notice that the song is a little bit different everywhere you go. Oh, they're just such a marvellous bird. I was at an engineering workshop, quite a heavy industrial one, and outside were buses sneezing exhaust fumes everywhere. It was rush hour traffic in the middle of Auckland, and there was a tree outside. I heard a grey warbler sing in the midst of all that. The shadow of what used to be, it's the only one left sometimes. Yep, they're good. And when they're there, you hear them. 
vote Grey Warbler. The Kakapo in 2008, man, the efforts that have gone in to save that thing, starting in the 1890s with Richard Henry. These birds nearly disappeared. They were so close to being extinct, and it's only through people like Richard Henry that really brought them back from oblivion. It's still a, a hard fight. A lot of effort goes into looking after these guys, but worth it, eh? The world's yeah. largest parrot, yep. nocturnal. They don't have any close relatives. They are the only ones. Next week, just a heads up, may as well, while we're talking about it now, got Alison Balance with her book Kākāpō, a redone version, whatever they call that, and also The Life of Richard Henry. Uh, he's the subject of our outsider's tale. It'll be after 11 next Sunday night. OK, Kiwi, the national bird, in 2009 finally got there. This year we've got a breakaway kiwi campaign. There's five species of kiwi and one of them, the roi kiwi, is running its own campaign. That's, That's cheating otherwise. You've got five <laughs> species. Well, I don't know if they're going to split their vote or not, but it'll be good to see how the roi does. There's only 450 roi left. Every single one of them gets raised by hand as an, um, until it's old enough to fight off and then it's released back into the forest down in South Westland. Kakariki came in number one in 2010. There was some controversy surrounding that with vote rigging. Yeah, you might know more about that than me, Graham. Yeah, well, um, I, I did present an inquiry. I would called for one, but it didn't happen. But never mind. It's a worthy bird. <laughs> I don't know anything. I don't know anything, Graham. <laughs> you and Julian Assange. <laughs> um, this year you can vote for the orange-fronted parakeet, which is our rarest kakariki species. They live in a single valley down near Arthur's Pass National Park, maybe 300 of them in the wild. They're in some pretty serious trouble, so they'd probably appreciate your vote this year. Pukeko, that came in 2011. I think it's fair to actually suspect that big business meddling and lobbying came into this. It was the spokesbird for some big company or other, wasn't it? Their entire employee basis, they were threatened with being sacked <laughs> unless they got out there and voted. Well, when you're passionate, you're passionate. And if you're the CEO, I guess you've got to pull some strings, right? Yeah. But, you know, the Pukeko are straightening out their acts this year because they are being championed by the Canterbury Police. So I expect that they're Bloody going to be hell. walking a straight line this time around. The fuzz! Are behind the Pukeko. Wow. <laughs> it was, uh, I think it was the colours that did it for them. Oh, right. Okay. 2012, the area, the Falcon. Seen one of these in action. They're an amazing and underappreciated bird. Many people can't tell the difference or wouldn't know the difference. They see a, an Australasian Harrier Hawk and think, oh, that's a Falcon, but no, they're different machines, aren't they? The Harrier Hawk is big and usually see it hovering above roads, sort of gliding around looking for roadkill, something like that. But the Forest Falcon key difference is that it's a small bird. One's big, one's small. You'll see a falcon in the bush as well where they hunt, zipping in and out between trees and taking the prey by surprise, whereas the harrier hawk will, will go for the easy roadkill. Okay, yellowhead, mohua, gorgeous singing bird and one of our few sort of yellowy looking things. There are some strongholds but they're really, really vulnerable, aren't they? They used to be all over the country and now they're um, just down in the South Island now, just in a few little pockets there. But, you know, they're a bit like the piwaka waka. They lay a lot of eggs oh. and if we can control our rats and stoats and possums, the moho have got a really good chance of a comeback. Mm. Speaking of comebacks, maybe this year's the year. 
Okay, the furry tern, our rarest bird, a precarious thing. So much effort has gone into them and they're not really fighting back. Bird of the year 2014. They're our rarest endemic bird. There's only 10 breeding pairs of them left. There's 40 birds in total, but only 20 of them have paired up. They nest on the beach. They, they don't even have a nest. They just scrape a little bit of shell away and lay the eggs. So they're really vulnerable to storms, but also to dogs and humans as well. Humans walking around or driving around on beaches can do a lot of damage to our birds that nest on beaches. They're in serious trouble, but they're going to run a good campaign this year, I think. So maybe give them your vote. All right. Enough meddling. The Godwit spends some time in Russian territory. There was some talk that might have been Russian meddling in the election that year, 2015. It comes here after flying 11,000 kilometres non-stop. It's ridiculous. Yeah, the world's longest migration of any bird. These guys are amazing. They weigh just less than half a kilo and they fly an 11,000 trip from one end of the planet to the other. Kokako came in in 2016, one of the most beautiful-sounding birds we have remaining, with respect and a salute to the extinct Peel Peel. Beautiful song, not very often heard. Auckland is lucky enough to have a few populations of Kokako in their Hanua yeah. Ranges and in the Waitakere Ranges as well. And, of course, Tiritiri. Yeah. On the um, islands out there. All right, that was 2016. Oh, we're running out of time, but we're nearly there. 2017, the Kia, a tremendous burden as much as they can take apart a tourist's vehicle and they get shooed away and say, leave our bloody birds alone. How cool are the Kia? The world's only alpine parrot, but they're in serious trouble. They've got the same problem as all our other birds do, which is stoats, rats and humans, really. Yeah. If we could hold off from feeding them, or engaging with them at all, that would solve a lot of their problems. But we've really got to take care of our introduced predators as well because Kia nest on the ground. That makes them really vulnerable. Yeah, nice to see it come through actually in 2017 because they've had a bad rep in the past as well. I think that's well over now. You know, they were hunted right up until 1971. There was a bounty for killing Kia and they were only fully protected in 1986. That's the lineup. What will happen this year is up to you. If we can manage to keep this a straight up vote, Julian Assange has had his finger in the pie, people making bots to get their bird over the top. John Oliver, if you're listening, you've got to cover this in your show. This is one of the weird things that we take very, very seriously. Bird of the Year voting starts October the 1st. Monday. We'll be keeping in touch with you for a running tally throughout. It's two weeks. That's all, isn't it? Just one fortnight to get your vote in. One person, one vote. All right. Watch out for fake bird news too. Thank you very much, Megan. I'll talk with you again next weekend if you can spare a minute or two just for a rundown. Yeah. It'll be announced on national radio, won't it, on the Monday after? Yeah, that's right, on the Monday. But we'll uh, we'll keep you up to date in the meantime. Okay. Thank you very much, Megan Hoopcher, Forest stuff. and Bird.